The School of Ministry and Leadership is the meeting from Potter's Family Chapel where we gather week after week to peer into the Word of God to understand whether or not it has anything to say to our leadership. And time after time, the Word proves that indeed it does. You see, in the beginning, God created man and woman, and He blessed them both and commanded them to have dominion over every created thing in the earth and to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. This is a call to leadership, for us to steward our God-given gifts and talents to cultivate the field he's called us to for his glory. We all have the seed of leadership in us, and God wants you to be equipped to lead because the world needs you right now. No matter who you are, it's my prayer that as you listen and as you begin to believe, you will see yourself growing as a leader. God bless you, and God bless your leadership. As his presence is already here this evening, let us lift up the school of ministry and leadership to him and let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the school of ministry and leadership. Father, we thank you that it pleases you to visit us every week that it pleases you to teach us yourself from your spirit every week, that you care so much about our development. You care so much, Lord, about equipping us from the truth of your word. And so we just bless your name this evening, Lord, as this is the, the grace that you have given us. Holy Spirit, as always, we invite you into this place. We ask, Lord, that your presence be so strong tonight. We ask, Lord, that your presence go before us even into the word tonight and that no flesh and no glory, no, no flesh would glory in your presence, Lord, that as you lift up your word to us and we peer into it as a mirror, as we behold you, Lord Jesus, we would be transformed by this word tonight, that we would be transformed and we would move from glory to glory in the name of Jesus, and we would become more like your image and more like your likeness so that when you do appear, Lord, we know that right now we do not know what we are, but that when you appear, that we will appear like you. And we cannot wait, Lord, until that moment. But until that moment, Lord, we ask you to give us boldness, give us courage, give us wisdom to be able to fulfill the assignments that you have given us so that you alone would be glorified. Father, I know that this word tonight will reach each and every one of your children at their point of need, whether they need correcting, whether they need confronting, whether they need encouragement, whether they need reminding. You are in control, Lord, and we thank you for everything that you've done. In the mighty name of Jesus, we have prayed and all the saints shall say amen. Hallelujah. So God bless you, everyone, and welcome to the School of Ministry and Leadership. It is uh, my privilege to have this teaching platform, and we want to recognize all of you who are here already. We, in particular, want to recognize the mother of the house, Mrs. Eureka Adam Armstrong. Mommy, God bless you for being here. And uh, I believe that the word that the Lord has for us this evening is... Um, is going to mean something to us. It's going to be meaningful. So we're going to start in a place that uh, we know very well. When I was asking God what 
he was going to teach his children this week. He took me back, so we're in the Old Testament. We're going to hear a story. And as I reflected on this passage, which we know so well, you know, part of this story is it's an origin story. It's a story that tells us about the beginnings of a great leader. But it's also a, a story of endings. It's the story of one man's beginnings and another man's endings. It's a story of victory. It's a story of the victory of one nation. But it's also a story of, of defeat, of as one nation is victorious, the other nation is defeated. It's a story of revelation, in as much as this is a story of origins and it shows us the beginnings of this character. As we go through the text, we realize that it's actually not a story of beginnings at all. It's a story of continuity that what this character shows us or what is revealed about him is nothing new. It actually shows us who he has always been. And I think the revelation aspect of this story is so important uh, that this is what the Lord wants us to see. That even as we are beginning, some of you are just on the cusp of your leadership stories. When you look back at your lives and you think about the moment at which you really began to break through, I know that this sense of breakthrough is so palpable for so many of you. It's just in front of you. You can just about reach and, and touch it, but not quite. You'll look back at the season and you'll, you'll see that this was the season where you really stepped into something new, a new level, a new change. But the revelation is, is that actually what was revealed about you in this season was in fact who you always were. It's just that there needed to be a particular situation or a, or a particular circumstance that showed everyone else who you were. And so this evening we are in 1 Samuel. And we find the nation of Israel and the Philistines have set up for battle. And we know that this is the story where we meet David. Not for the first time. We've already met him earlier in Samuel's account. But this is the moment where David is translated from being just a little forgotten shepherd boy out in the woods with his father's sheep to now being the, the hero and the savior of Israel. So I'm going to read the text from the verse 33 down to the verse 40. And what's happened before this is, is that the battle camps have been drawn for 40 days and 40 nights. And of course, no detail is ever lost in the Bible. So it's interesting to us that it's been 40 days and 40 nights that the camps of Israel and the camps of the Philistines have been drawn ready to engage in this battle. And we know that the champion of the Philistines was this giant named Goliath. And Goliath had been taunting the armies of Israel, saying to them that if they had a man who could fight that they should send that man down to the front line, and that if their man won, then the Philistines would serve them. But if he won, he, Goliath, then the Israelites would have to become the servants of the Philistines. And there's a lot of text that explains to us exactly how big 
Goliath was and how heavy his armor was. And there's also text that explains to us how afraid the armies of Israel were. So let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 33. The king Saul replied, speaking to David, who's shown up. His father has sent him on this errand to take some food to his brothers and see how they're doing at the front line and take some cheeses to the, the captains of the army. So David's been running around, listening to the men as they speak of their fear, but also speaking of the reward that will be given to the one who can defeat the giant. So the verse 33 starts, and Saul replied, speaking to David, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Hallelujah. So this is such a powerful passage, and I'm going to make a few points from it. I'm going to make one, two, three, four, four points this evening. So we might not take the whole hour. Let's see, Let's see how we do. So the first point that I want to make, we're speaking about leadership here, and I couldn't actually title this message, but I suppose maybe this has to do about the revelation of leadership, if we had to give it a title. For those of you who take notes, you can call this the revelation of leadership. And I'll make four points, maybe five. So the first point when we're speaking about how is your leadership revealed? What happens in that moment where history meets destiny, where beginnings, one beginning meets one end, where one victory meets one defeat, and yet there's this continuity of character, this continuity of leadership. The first point is, is that the problem is more advanced than you. The problem is more advanced than you. And even before we look at this text, one of the things that we know about the history of the people of God, when we look at how Israel had to move from Egypt and 
sojourn before they got into the promise that God had given them, this ancient promise that was at least 470 years old. They had been waiting to enter into the promised land, the promise that had been given to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The first point is that the problem is always more advanced than you, that there are giants in the land. Those giants exist in the land before you. Those giants are from old. So even before the people of Israel could get into the promised land, we know that the 12 spies, while the children of Israel were still in the wilderness, that the 12 spies were sent into Canaan to scout it and to see what it looked like and to bring back some evidence of this land that they heard flowed with milk and honey. And when the spies go into the land, the report that they bring back, yes, they bring back the giant grapes, and yes, they bring back, you know, all of these sweets from the land. But the report that they brought from the land was that the land was inhabited with giants, that the sons of, of Anak live there. And they said, we can't go. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. And so the problem that you're facing in your leadership is a problem from old. Even after that generation had been killed off, after that generation had died, so 40 years later, when Joshua is now leading the people of Israel and he has to now step into the Jordan and cross over into this land, Joshua remembered that there were giants in it, but the Lord told him that you are to be of a strong courage, you are to be strong and of a good courage, that yes, there may be giants in the land, but I am with you. And so we have to understand that our leadership is always revealed in the presence of giants. Our leadership is always revealed in the presence of these principalities. The problem is more advanced than you. It's older than you. It's been in the land longer than you. And so this is what young David finds himself up against when that morning when he woke up and he was simply obeying his father by running an errand and taking his brothers some supplies at the front line. David ends up facing a giant and it's in this moment of meeting the giant, meeting this advanced problem, meeting this principality that David's leadership is revealed. And we're going to come back to this point about the principality uh, at the end. So just put a little star next to that. But the first point is, is that the problem is more advanced than you. When David shows up, this problem has been around Israel's neck for 40 days and 40 nights. The troops are scared, they don't have a solution, and young David shows up. So the, the problem has preceded him and the problem is, is more advanced than him. Let's look at the second point, which is that David draws on his personal experience. He draws on his personal experience. And we see this in this exchange that when, you know, this ruddy, good-looking kid is going up and down the the ranks and he's listening to the soldiers and he's asking them questions and his brothers even get annoyed because they're like, what are you, what are you doing here? Why are you asking questions? This is none of your business. This is real man stuff. Aren't you supposed to be in the 
woods watching after daddy's sheep, who sent you here? And David knows that he's not a soldier. He knows he's not a warrior. But he's, he has a personal experience that he can draw on. He draws on his shepherding, which on the face of it has nothing to do with war. And yet, in that experience, he faced battle-like conditions. He faced the bear. He faced the lion. And when your leadership is being revealed, you also have to draw on your personal experience. You have something to draw on from your history. It may not look exactly like the situation that you're currently facing, but it will help you. It can help you. Not because you've seen the situation before, but because you've seen God move in your situation before. What's amazing about this exchange when we actually listen to the conversation that David is having with the men. If we go to the verse 23, the men are speaking to David and they repeated these words to David. But David said, no, I want, I want it from the King James and I don't have the King James with me. But what, what, what the King James says is, is that David heard the men. He heard what they were saying. It doesn't tell us that he saw the giant. And this is really significant to us because it's amazing that David hasn't actually seen Goliath yet. He hasn't seen the problem. He hasn't, you know, been able to weigh up or measure the problem that is before them. But the person who he has seen is God. David saw God with him in the wilderness. David saw God with him in his loneliness. David saw God with him in his exile and his abandonment. David saw God in his rescuing. David knew that it was God who rescued him out of the grips of the bear, the grips of the lion. So David hasn't seen this Goliath. He hasn't seen this problem, but David has seen God. And so this is what we mean when we're saying that no matter the situation that you're currently facing, that you think has nothing to do, you're not equipped, you're not experienced, you don't have the know-how, you don't have the networks, you don't have the knowledge, but there is something in your experience where you've seen God move, and that's the thing that is going to help you face this problem that is more advanced than you, but if you are willing, is going to be the experience that reveals your leadership. Let's look at the third point, and I think I'll spend a little bit of time here. The third point is that David makes the nation's dream his dream, or he makes the problem his problem. He makes, it was actually, it was actually a national nightmare, it was a national terror, but he makes it his dream. He takes the national burden and he makes it his burden. And the question that I want to ask you this evening is, are you owning the dream? Or are you fulfilling someone else's dream? In the assignment that you currently find yourself in, in the situation that you currently find yourself in, in the place where you are leading, are you owning that as your own dream? Or are you simply trying to fulfill someone else's dream? How can you tell? How do you know? A few indicators. Does the 
assignment put a burden on you? Do you feel weighed down by this burden? Or do you feel exhilarated by this burden? Is this a rock on your shoulders or is this wings on your shoulders? Is this dream yours or is this dream someone else's? Does the dream wear you down or does it keep you up? Does it make you fall asleep out of weariness or does it keep you up at night because you're strategizing and thinking and praying and envisioning? Are you owning the dream or are you just trying to fulfill someone else's? Do you look for affirmation from other people? Do you seek do you seek to put blame on other people? Or are you taking responsibility? Are you taking initiative? Are you taking the blame? Are you encouraging yourself in the Lord? As we know later, the Bible tells us that David encouraged himself in the Lord. Are you owning this dream? Are you taking a part of this national vision and crafting out your own dream for it? so that you can have your own passion for it, so that you don't have to wait for anyone else. You can do it on your own. One thing that came to me as I was preparing this message, when we speak about dreams, your dream versus someone else's dream, I heard the Lord whispering to me that the man at the pool of Bethesda, he was there for 38 years, sitting on his mat, making excuses that no one would help him into the pool year after year when it was the time for the angel to come down and stir the waters because he did not have a dream of being healed. And that sounds quite harsh, but this is the truth, that most people don't have a dream. And when I looked at this and I looked at the, st at the statistics, I learned that 50% of people They've done, they've done studies on this. And the statistics are that 50% of people give up their dream in life because things don't work out the way they wanted. Things don't work out the way they expected. Things don't work out the way or the t at the time that they thought they would. Or they had a dream, but they didn't have a plan to execute that dream. So the way life goes, 50% of people eventually will give up on their dream. But that's not all. The studies also showed that of the 50% who maintained their dream, only 25% of that 50, so only a quarter of that remaining 50%. In other words, 13% of people actually achieve their dreams. So you can imagine if we're living on the planet right now and we are 8 billion people, only 13% of humanity achieves their dreams. That's shocking. That's a shockingly low figure. And so when we read about this man who stuck at the pool for 38 years, you know, and we, we usually think that He's a loser, you know? I mean, why, why did it take 38 years for this guy? I mean, Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed or not? But this man, his real ailment was that he never had a dream of being healed. So what makes David's leadership, what reveals David's leadership in this moment is that 
He has a dream. He takes the nation's dream, this the the, na- the national desire to do something with this Goliath. They've been there for forty days and forty nights, and they they don't know what to do. They just they would wish that he would go away. They would wish that someone would show up who could defeat him, so that they would not have to go into slavery to the Philistines. They had this problem that they needed to dealt with. David shows up not on assignment, but he shows up and in that moment, he carves out for himself out of the national dream, out of the organizational dream, out of the ministry dream, out of the family dream. He carves out for himself his own dream. And in order to fulfill your dreams, you have to be willing to fight and you have to be willing to invest. And you need more than one reason for your dream. Otherwise, at the sight of adversity, you will faint. That's why only 13% of us actually achieve our dreams, if we're even part of the 50% who will hold on to our dreams. So that's a very telling statistic. So I'm staying here because I want us to, I don't want us to miss this. That out of 100 people, if we were 100 on this call, 50 of us at some point in our lives will give up on our dreams. That doesn't say much about faith. And of the 50 of us who will hold on to our dreams, only 13% of us, a quarter, a quarter of, of us left will actually achieve it. And so this is why faith is so important when we're talking about faith, about this substance, this weight, this heft of the thing that is hoped for, the measure or the evidence of the thing that has not yet been seen. You know, we don't see our dreams. We see them in the eyes of our imagination, but we we haven't seen them. When you buy a land and the land is empty and you dream a structure, You haven't built the structure. You just have a picture in your mind's eye of how the structure will be. But it's after that dream that you then have to go through the labor and the arduous work of actually bringing that vision that you saw in your mind and making it tangible, making it wood, making it concrete, making it iron rods. And so as Christians, one of the things that protects us, the other challenge about dreams is that you have a lot of people who would be called dreamers. When we use the word dreamers, we're usually speaking about people who fantasize, right? We're talking about people who are living with their heads in the clouds. They're filled with ideas, but they're not action people. We usually use the word dreamer as a it's not usually a compliment, right? When you say that, that guy, oh, that's right. That guy's a dreamer. It's not a compliment. You're saying that that guy is just living in his mind, living in his visions, living in his ideas. But as followers of Christ, the thing that will protect us from being fantasizers only and converting those fantasies into dreams is by having what Oz Guinness calls the Christian vision. And what he simply means is is that you are mixing foresight with insight. So foresight meaning you can see far, 
or you can see beforehand. And insight, meaning you can see into a thing. What's he, what he's speaking about is about discernment. It's about, it's about when, you, when you see through the eye of your faith. It's not, this, it's not a fantasy. It's not this wishy-washy vision that you can never manifest. What the eye of your faith does is that it, it, it views with foresight. It sees a thing before it is, right? That's what the Bible says about this Jesus who we follow, that all things consist in him. In him, all things were made that were not made, that everything that before it was created into tangible, it existed in him. So the eye of your faith is the thing that sees with foresight. It sees a thing before it is manifest. It sees a thing ahead of its manifestation. But it's also looking with the eye of insight, looking into a thing, being able to discern a thing. And so when David shows up at this war front, because remember, that was not his assignment. His father didn't send him and say, go this day down and fight Goliath. He said, go down this day and take some cheese to the captains and take some meal to your brothers and find out how they're doing and come home. So when David shows up and he's drawing on his past experiences and he's facing the situation that was more advanced than him, but he hears what's happening. He hasn't seen the problem, but he knows the God that he's seen. He knows the invisible God that he has already seen. When David shows up, before he sees the giant with his eyes, he's looking with the eye of faith and he's got foresight and he's got insight, and he knows that by faith that he can solve this problem. And so this is the revelation of David's leadership. The last thing that I'll say about dreams is that once you have a dream, and once it's protected by your Christian vision, once you are looking with the eye of faith, and you've got foresight, and you've got insight, beware of the dream stealers. Beware of those people who will try to block you from your dream. Beware of those people who will try to give you their own dreams. And we see this happen to David, that his brother Eliab, when he starts insulting him, he's trying to steal, he's trying to block David's dream. When he taunts him and he says, why are you here and who did you leave those few sheep with? He's trying to block David's dream because he's able to, he, he's able to perceive that David has seen something that he, Eliab, who's been standing at that same place for 40 days and 40 nights, he's not perceived. So beware of the dream blockers once you've been able to carve out for yourself a part of the dream, a part of the national dream or the ministry dream or the family dream. Beware of the dream blockers. But also beware of those who try to give you their dreams. And we see Saul giving David his armor. And I don't want, I, I don't want to talk too much about the armor because we're going to speak about the armor in more depth in the next point. But as Saul tries to clothe David 
Remember, Saul has also been there facing this problem for the past 40 days and 40 nights. And he was the king. Saul was the leader. So actually, this issue of Goliath should have been solved by the king, by the ruler, by the one who had authority over the situation, by the one who was the commander, the commander-in-chief. And Saul, like the rest of them, had been standing there waiting for all this time until young David shows up. And when David shows up, Saul says, okay, well, go. May your God be with you. But here's my dream. Wear my armor into the battle. So beware the dream stealers. They'll either try to block you from your dream or they will try to give you their own dream. And we know that, well, yeah, let me just leave it at that. <laughs> let me just leave it at that. And let's go to the fourth point. And this actually just leads on from what we were saying about Saul. The one thing that David knows in his young life, in the lack of warfront experience that he has, in height, whatever, what David knew was that facing this situation, he could not wear someone else's armor. And as a leader, you have to know that when you are facing a situation, when you are in that moment where your leadership is going to be revealed, you cannot be wearing someone else's armor. If you are going to fulfill the assignment that God has given you, you have to wear your own armor. You have to know what it is that God has given you. And what astounded me when I looked at this text is that after David has tried on Saul's armor, he puts on the tunic, he puts on, what, what else does he put on? He puts on the coat of armor, he puts on the bronze helmet, he's got the tunic, he's got the sword, and he's wobbling around under the weight of this ill-fitting armor. You know, they don't have the same body size. They don't have the same body shape. David says, I, I cannot go into this situation with your armor. Your armor might be the most expensive. This might be, you know, the most custom-made chainmail tunic. The, the silversmiths probably took their time. It's been anointed for you. But this is your armor. This is not my armor. And in order to lead as a godly leader, you have to understand one of the things that you should be praying for is for God to reveal to you what is your armor. And after David says that I, I can't go in these because I'm not used to them, David removes Saul's armor. He removes the thing that would have identified Saul. And David picks up the staff that he came with, the little shepherd's staff. And the reason why that amazed me is because you'll recall a few weeks ago when we were looking at Moses, that when God calls Moses and when God gives him this assignment to go to Egypt, go back to Egypt, the Lord asks Moses, what is that in your hand? And Moses says, it's a rod. And God uses the rod that Moses had in his hand. The same way God uses the staff that David had in his hand. And so it's to tell us that 
when your leadership is going to be revealed in that moment, God is going to ask you, what do you have in your hand? What's the talent or the gifting or the experience that you have in your hand? For some of you, it's going to be the staff that you used in battle. The way David had to fight this lion and fight this bear when he was in the woods, when he was in the wilderness alone. For others of you, it's going to be the rod that you had all those years that you were out in exile in the wilderness at the back, at the back of the desert. So regardless of whether you've been through wilderness or you've been through attacks, battles, at the moment that your leadership is going to be revealed, God is going to ask you, what are you holding on to? What's in your hand? What, what did you have through all of those years when I was with you, but you knew it or you didn't know it? What is that thing that you're holding on to? That experience, that still small voice within you, that talent that I've given you that makes you unique and exceptional, that gifting that I've given you, that unction that you're carrying, what do you have in your hand? So David has come to this moment carrying this shepherd's staff. And God asks him, actually, we don't see God asking him, but he takes in the verse 40, David takes the staff in his hand. What else do we see David doing in this moment? He picks up five smooth stones and he puts them in his shepherd's pouch. So David is about to step into this moment where his leadership is going to be revealed and he's carrying what he came to the battle with. He can't fight or fulfill this assignment wearing someone else's garments. And what he's going to use is he's going to use, number one, the thing that he's had in his hand that God gave him through his experience, be it wilderness or be it attack. But then in the moment, the Bible tells us that David goes to the stream. So there was a stream that was nearby. And David chooses for himself five smooth stones. So we know, of course, that five is always the biblical number of grace. God is saying to us that in that moment when your leadership is going to be revealed, that no matter what you've come with, no matter, the, no matter what it is that you already have in your hand, that in the moment, you're also going to be able, there's going to be grace available to you. There's going to be something that you can pick up from the situation, from the environment, from that moment. You can pick up grace and you can add it to what you are already carrying. And what I found interesting is, is when I looked at the Hebrew word, when David chooses these five stones, in English, we would jump over it very quickly because we think that it's nothing. We've all been by the river and we've picked up stones. But the word choose there is the Hebrew word bakar. And what bakar means is it means to carefully select, to take a keen look at, to prove, or to choose based on thorough examination of the situation. So these five smooth stones that David picks up from the stream, 
he does so intentionally. He doesn't just pick up the first five rocks that he sees. He examines them. He keenly looks them over. So we don't actually know the time from the time that David says, I'm going, I'm going to go face this situation to the time that he equips himself, that he reaches out for the available grace. But what we know is that he took some time to thoroughly examine, to prove these stones, to carefully, intentionally select them. He wasn't arbitrary about them. And we see the same word, bakar, it's actually used in Isaiah 48, chapter, uh, chapter 48, verse 10, where God is speaking to the people and he says, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. So to choose here means to prove, to thoroughly examine, to carefully select. It's not just a random, quick thing that David is doing by taking these five stones. So we see now David going into this battle, going to face this giant. We started off in our first point saying that the problem that you're going to face that is going to reveal your leadership will always be a problem that is more advanced than you. It's, it's, it's a, a problem that has been there longer than you. You show up and the problem has already been there. This is the moment we're speaking tonight of the revelation of your leadership, the moment where your leadership is revealed. And in fact, when you actually look at a map, if you look at a map of ancient Israel, just to situate yourself where this battle was taking place, because when we open 1 Samuel, at the beginning of the chapter, the text spends some time describing where the forces were assembled. If I read from the verse 2, it says that, if I read from the verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesdamim between Zoko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle lines to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. And then it goes on to, to describe just how big he was. He was six cubits, and it talks about how heavy his, his, his shield and his, his, his armor was. So it's fairly significant that the Bible spends some time explaining to us where this battle took place. And when I looked at the map of ancient Israel at that, at that time, what you actually see is that where this battle is taking place is not so far from Gath. And so we know that, that Goliath was on, on home, home turf. He had home crowd advantage. When we recall that David was from Bethlehem, that his, his father was an Ephrathite, we see that David comes to this battle and David does not have home court advantage. And so this is another layer for us to understand that when we are speaking about facing problems that are more advanced, it wasn't just that David showed up and that the battle lines had been arrayed for 40 nights and 40 days. It was actually that where the battle was taking place was closer to Gath, where Goliath came from. 
And so David is actually entering into enemy territory. When we go all the way back and we remember the, the, the giants of the land, the sons of Anak, and we know that Goliath was descended from them, we understand that this advanced problem was a principality that Goliath, in that moment, the battle was not between David and this really big dude named Goliath. It was between David and this principality named Goliath, this principality that had occupied the land before he got there. And this is the moment where his leadership is going to be revealed. So if you are going to become the leader that God has set you to be, then you have to understand and you have to accept that you have to do battle with the principality that has been on that land before you in order for the fullness of your leadership to be seen, which is why the armor becomes so important. When David says, I cannot go in your armor, King Saul, David understands that in order to fight this principality, that David has to go in his own armor. Not, we're not talking about the physical armor. We're not talking about the chain mail and the tunic. We're talking about putting on the whole armor of God. So if we turn to that passage in Ephesians chapter 6, let's read it. Paul writes to us and he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of this dark world and spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Or the King James would say, you, you will be able to withstand. And after having done all to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness on your heart, and with your feet shod in the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which you can, with which you can extinguish all the fiery darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So a few things I want to point out and then we're done. The first point, just emphasizing what we've already said, is that instead of taking another man's armor into this battle, into this moment where your leadership will be revealed, you put on the whole armor of God. And this is why David was so amazing when he showed up, as I said. When the scripture tells us, we, we see it in the King James, that David had not seen the giant, but as he was speaking to the men, he heard what they were saying. He heard their fear. 
So David, when he got to the battle line, he hadn't seen the giant. What he was going with was the one who he had seen, the invisible God. He had seen God. He had seen what he had done. And so that is David's armor. We know from Ephesians that Paul repeats three times the importance of standing. He says, take your stand against the wiles of the devil. Withstand on the evil day. After you have done all to stand. And then stand firm, wearing your armor. And then he describes to us what the armor is. But what this tells us is that sometimes when you need to fulfill your leadership assignment, sometimes it's not about pursuing the enemy. Sometimes it's not about chasing after or putting to flight. Sometimes it's just about standing. You have to take your stand. You have to withstand and you have to do all to stand. Sometimes just standing up in the assignment is enough. And when the darts are coming and you continue to stand, when the accusations come and you can still stand, when the rejection comes and you can still stand, when the fear comes and you can still stand, when the distractions and the other very real pressures from life, your parenthood, your job, whatever else it is, your, your family, stand. When disappointment creeps up, when doubt begins whispering at you, stand. This is what it means to put on the whole armor of God. And this is why someone else's armor cannot help you in this situation, because it, it will not fit you. It will not be comfortable. Their experiences, their temperament, their giftings, their talents, their calling, their vocation, none of that fits what it is that God has uniquely placed you and called you to fulfill. So put on the whole armor of God and stand. The second point about the armor, as we know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against powers and principalities. That word that gets used for principality in the Greek is the word arche. It means chief. You can think about arch, right? Like your arch enemy, your arch rival. Arch means chief. And so chief refers to the one who was there first. When we go back to 1 Samuel, when it describes Goliath, Goliath is described as a champion. In other words, he was first. He had been at the battlefront for 40 days before David got there. He had been fighting longer than David had, even possibly for as long, even more, even longer than David had lived. We don't know how old Goliath was, but we know that David was still a youth at this point, probably in his late teens. So when Saul tells him that this man has been fighting since he was a youth and you are but a youth, what he means is that Goliath's been in the game for a minute, you know? Goliath was archaic, he was chief, he was champion. So this is how we understand that Goliath was a principality. That yes, Israel would have been fearful of this physical giant, but the battle was really between David and the principality of Goliath, this principality that had inhabited the land 
before David got there. This principality of whom the territory belonged, I mean, they were, they were near Gath. This territory belonged to the principality Goliath. And here comes this kid from Bethlehem carrying some cheese. So in order to dislodge the principalities that you do face in your leadership, Paul is making us to know that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Even if that flesh and blood looks physically bigger than us, what we are wrestling with is the archaic, with the principality. And that principality has certain privileges. When we speak about the principalities and the powers, what it refers to is the principalities and the privileges that the principality has by virtue of being first, by virtue of being on home ground, having home turf uh, advantage. And so this is the battle. And this is why the revelation of leadership happens in this moment. This is why David did not look at the principality. He saw the God whom he had known, the God who had saved him from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion. And that's why David knows, David knows that at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee must bow and every tongue must confess that Jesus is Lord. So David says, I have no problem. I know I may be smaller, I know I may be shorter, but I'm not fighting this principality. I'm putting on the whole armor of God and this God who has saved me before, he will surely save me again. Let me make the last point. It's about Saul's armor. If we ask ourselves then, okay, Paul tells us, stand, take your stand, withstand, do all to stand, and having done all, stand then, stand firm, stand firm wearing your armor. So we should ask ourselves, how then do you stand firm? How then do you stand firm? And what I noticed was that it's five plus one, right? It's five plus one. When we count off the pieces of the armor, we've got six pieces that uh, we have. We've got the belt of truth. We've got the breastplate of righteousness. We've got the shoes, the preparation of the gospel of peace. And then once you've put those three on, then you take, you take the shield of faith. You take the helmet of salvation, and then you take the sword of the spirit. So six pieces, five plus one equals six. When we turn back to 1 Samuel, when we look at this uh, armor of Saul's, what do we notice? Saul, verse 38, dresses David in his own tunic, one. He puts on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet. And David fastens the sword over the tunic. So what do you notice? Saul's armor comes with a tunic, a coat of armor, a bronze helmet, and a sword. There's something missing from Saul's armor. Saul did not offer David a shield. What David knew about Saul's armor, why it would be inadequate for the battle, is that Saul had no shield of faith to give to David. That's why David said, I cannot go in these. 
I have not tested, I have not proved your armor. So instead, I'm going to go with the staff in my hand. What I have in my hand, a staff, I'm coming with the experience that God gave me. In this situation, in this environment, in the circumstance, I'm going to reach out for grace and I'm going to carefully look for grace and put those five stones in my shepherd's pouch. And I'm going to go and face this principality. And I know that the God who delivered me before will deliver me again. Hallelujah. So I want someone to be encouraged this evening that if you are in this situation, you feel as though you're right on the cusp. You know that you've been called to a moment where your leadership is about to be revealed. You've gone on assignment and the assignment actually that you thought you were on, it's something much bigger. You find yourself in this moment, in the situation that is far more advanced than you. You're up against a principality. But you know that there is something that you can draw on from your experience. That you may not have faced a situation like this. You haven't even seen the totality of this situation. But you've seen the invisible God and you know what he can do. And in this moment where your leadership is about to be revealed, you cannot wear someone else's garments. You have to be you. You have to be the, the, the one who's been fearfully and wonderfully made. You have to be the one whom God knew in the womb, who before you were born, he knew you. He's made you for this moment. And if you would just look at this moment, not with your physical eye, but with your eye of faith, to have foresight and insight, then you don't even need to look at the giant, but keep your eye on Jesus. The Bible tells us that as we behold him, even though we are looking through this glass darkly, that as we behold him, we are being transformed from glory into glory. And I know that that's someone's word for this evening. So may you receive it in faith. May you believe it. And may you know that no matter where you've been up until now, that God is bringing you into the situation, that you are the one that in this bigger dream, there is a dream, there is a passion that you can carve out for yourself. And as you do that, he is with you. He is for you. And he's going to give you the victory because what you've proven to him when no one else was around is exactly the kind of leadership that this moment demands. So God bless you and let us pray.